hope indeed the love of the Lord Jesus lifts our hearts up to him. I want to invite you to turn with me this morning uh, once again to 1 Samuel. We've got a few more weeks in 1 Samuel before we transition uh, over the course of the summer. Turn with me today to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Bulletins, blue Bibles, page references in your uh, bulletin or in your own Bibles as is best for you. Uh, just by way of reminder, in case you weren't here last week, or by way of reminder if you were here last week, as we pick up with the reading in chapter 14, we find ourselves to be still in the same dire straits uh, in which the people of Israel were found in chapter 13. Saul's army, the first efforts apparently at some kind of a standing army, has deteriorated. It has gone down to 600 men, and in the midst of those 600 men, there are two swords. There are two swords, one possessed by Saul and the other possessed by Jonathan, his son, who was also a commander of a part of the forces. The Philistines continue to surround them, to march upon them. Saul has sinned against the Lord, as we saw last week, and Samuel has departed from them. Now, so you are aware, I'm just going to read a portion of this chapter for us today. I'm going to read through verse 15. Uh, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter nor preach on it, uh, and I'm not returning to it in the weeks to come either. So if you'd like to follow up with that reading, it describes how the Lord uses the battle, of which I'll read in just a moment here, to lead to a sound defeat of the Philistines by the Israelites. But in the midst of that, Saul makes a rash vow, and it goes back and forth working through that. There are echoes in the rest of this chapter of things that took place in Judges, and in fact, that's true in the section that we're reading as well. But in any case, you can read through that and consider that uh, on your own. I'm just going to look at for us the first uh, few verses of this chapter today. So here then, this portion of God's holy word. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sanat. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish, 
Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves, ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So... Both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word. And we thank you for the examples that are set before us. We live in a different time, in a different place. And uh, we have seen the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And so we pray that now, as I preach these words for us, as we've heard them read for us, we pray that you would allow us to handle them well and accurately, that we would not go too far to one side or to another side, but instead we would preach that I would preach your truth and that you would enable all of us, myself included, to hear it, to hear it well, to hear it accurately and to apply it to our lives. We pray that to you week after week, and even in our own devotional times and small groups. Lord, do the work in us. Chip away at our hearts that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable. Every bit of it is profitable. Every page of it is profitable. The portion that I'm not preaching on this morning is profitable. It's given by God. It's the inspired word of God. But having said that, all Scripture, every page, every jot and tittle, can we also acknowledge a truth that as we look at the word of God that there are some verses... Some stories in the scripture that literally force jump off the page, that fix themselves deep in our hearts and our minds, that are landmarks in biblical history, but for each of us personally, they are things that we read and they fire our imagination, our moral and our spiritual imagination. There are stories in Scripture, and, and uh, let me just say it this way, there are stories in Scripture that kick us in the tail and just tell us, get up, 
stop sitting on the sidelines. Engage in the ministry. Stop being passive and serve the Lord and serve in the kingdom of the Lord. I think of various ones throughout Scripture, and you would probably have a different list than I, but perhaps some of these are similar. Is it one of those when Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Is one of those not when Rahab, in her initial profession and confession of faith, hides the spies of Israel? Or when Ruth says, listen, wherever you go, I will go, and your people will be my people, and my God will be your God. Those are the kind of places that I'm talking about. Or think of when uh, Mordecai says to Esther, perhaps you have been put in a place for such a time as this. You've come into the kingdom for just such an opportunity. They jump off the page, and for me, and I trust for many of us, this story of Jonathan going up with his armor-bearer against the Philistines is one of those places in Scripture. Of course, it is a precursor, a forerunner, if you will, of the story of David and Goliath, and perhaps more significantly, certainly more significantly, it's a forerunner of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the battle and the victory that Jesus will secure on our behalf. But in and of itself, this story is such a great example of that which is so simple, and I don't want to make it any more complex than what it is, of courage and faith. Of courage and faith, of how a man can trust in the Lord and walk before the Lord and accomplish the will of the Lord as well. If, if verses 6 and 7 in this chapter, if they don't stir your hearts, if they don't fire you up for seeking an opportunity to serve the Lord, if they don't make your your hands and your feet quiver and itch to do something for the Lord and for service to our King, may God have mercy on your soul if they don't fire you up. I want to keep it simple today. I want to talk about the story, and then I want to talk about the nature of our warfare, which I've already done a little bit in introducing the Timothy passage that we read earlier. And then I want to talk about our particular calling within that framework. The stage was set for us in the last chapter, in chapter 13. Jonathan in chapter 13, was introduced to us as a man of faith and action. He took action not only here in this chapter, but also in the one that preceded this as well. Saul, his father, has a tendency to look at numbers, at the people, at the circumstances are around, and he's continually adding things up, and of course things don't look good when you add them up, whereas Jonathan looks to the Lord. And of course, the battle situation from the beginning of chapter 13 to here now at the beginning of chapter 14 has deteriorated when now Jonathan takes this bold step for us without, in verse 1, without telling his father. 
He doesn't tell Saul what he is going to do. And I think that in and of itself, even though we don't have the reasons listed here why he didn't tell his dad what he was going to be doing, I think it tells us a lot about at least Jonathan's perception of Saul. Why didn't he tell his father? Well, I, I, it doesn't take, I don't, think, I don't think it takes too much imagination to say because he knew his father would have been against the plan. Right? There's, there's only two swords in Israel. There's two swords. So you're not going to take your other commander, your son, and say, hey, here's a great idea. You go up, climb up over the cliffs with one other guy and attack the Philistine garrison that's up there. Don't do that. So he knows that Saul is not going to see the boldness, the courage, the faithfulness, or he's not going to have those things himself, and so he doesn't tell his father about the plan. Saul seems characterized by indecision, by hesitancy, and, and even here it's, it's listed, and this becomes a little bit clearer in the rest of the story as it moves on through the chapter. His counselor, his advisor, is a priest from what we now know to be a rejected priestly family. We saw that back earlier in the book. But the priest that is, is advising him is of Eli's family. And the Lord rejected Eli's family from the priesthood. So you just get this, situa this sense of the situation going, okay, this is not good. That's not a good advisor, and we've seen what Saul tends to do when he's faced with desperate situations. Verse 4 tells us a little bit about this. It's a, it's a great description. There was a rocky crag on one side and on the other side, and you're waiting to hear something else. On the one side there was a rocky crag, and on this side there was something else. But you hear there's a rocky crag on the one side, and on the other side there's also a rocky crag. Uh, this is literally between a rock and a, and a rock. A rock and a hard place, that's all there are. They're just two rocky crags that they could have ascended to get up to to get over to where the Philistines were to make themselves be in a place where this skirmish, this battle against the garrison could actually take place. And if the definition and the terms, the meaning of those names that are given for the two rocky crags are accurate, one is shiny, that is to say slippery, and the other is thorny. So of the two rocky crags, of the rock and the hard place on either side of Jonathan, neither of them provides in any way, shape, or form an easy path, an easy way to go to get to the enemy himself. The battle, of course, won't be easy, and, and neither will getting there. Getting to the battle is going to put them in a precarious position and an exhausted position in and of itself, which brings us to the heart of this passage, which is, of course, as I've already said, verses 6 and 7. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And you look at that, or at least I look at that, I read that, and I think, what an incredible embodiment of the kind of qualities that are worthy of imitation. Qualities that I want to emulate. I want to see these things in my own life. 
I want to see the kind of initiative that is shown here by Jonathan in this particular place. Jonathan is not going to sit around and let the Philistines continue to encircle the Israelites. He's not going to sit there and say, okay, well, you know, let the Philistines do what they're going to do and, and let it be on their terms. Instead, he takes the initiative in a situation where everything practically, humanly speaking, is saying, there's nothing you can do here. There's nothing you can do. There's no way out of this situation. He takes the initiative and goes into it. And the courage he displays is extraordinary. Think of the commands that were given to Joshua. On the negative side, do not be dismayed, Joshua. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And then on the positive side, only be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous for I am with you. All of the circumstances are against this action, from the rocky crags to the limited amount of soldiers who are there, to the extraordinary amount of Philistines who are there, to the weaponry that is possessed by the Philistines. Everything says, this is a bad idea. And that's incredible courage shown in the face of it. And then the faith is on display here. The root of Jonathan's actions is his trust in the Lord's ability to save, the Lord's ability to deliver, by few or by many. Nothing is impossible with God. He can do this however he would like to do, with however many people he would, in fact, like to use. Now, there's a great phrase that's in our translations here. You may have it translated another way. But some are troubled by the words that Jonathan says when he says, maybe, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Or maybe some of the translations, if you have them in front of you, might say, perhaps the Lord will work for us. Some people look at that, and they hear that maybe, and they hear that perhaps, and it sounds to them like, Kelly, that's, that's a little bit of qualifying what's taking place here. That, that actually doesn't seem like faith, like this is going to happen. It's not a statement, the Lord is going to give them into our hands. There's a, there's a question mark as Jonathan is addressing his armor bearer, and some people find that troubling. Frankly, for me, uh, and, I, and I hope for all of us, that, that it is the opposite of that that it's actually one of the strongest statements that is made here in this text. And let me explain why that is. In the first place, it enhances the courage. It helps us to see the courage. Courage is, is less needed when circumstances are full of certainty. When you're sure Something's going to go well. Something's going to take place when this action that you're planning to do is likely to be successful. Well, that requires of us less courage than if things are uncertain. And so in this situation, the reality is, is that the uncertainty of the situation helps us to see the courage that it takes to go into it clearly. Does that make sense? So, so the very fact that he does not know 
whether or not the Lord will give them into her hand helps us to see the courage that is displayed by him when he goes into this thing. And secondly, and perhaps even more significantly and importantly than that, maybe, or perhaps in this case, preserves the freedom, the sovereign freedom of God to act according to his perfect will in any particular situation. All right, so we've got the statement in here by Jonathan. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And that statement is true, right? That statement is true. Nothing can hinder the Lord by, from saving, by many or by few. That statement is true, and it is always true. It's true at every time. It's true in every age. It's true for us now. It's true for him then. But that doesn't mean that we know the outcome of any and every particular situation in which we will engage, be it a battle, as it is in this case, or think of it now for a moment more in our situation, in our circumstances. We don't know if, if our church decided to do another church plant. This church has planted two churches. I don't know if you know the history of that. One's doing well, one didn't. We don't know if we decided to plant another church, whether or not it would be successful. We don't know for sure if we decided to start a different ministry, a new type of ministry within the church, whether that would be successful, whether it would be blessed of the Lord or not. We don't know whether a building project will go well. We don't know whether the roof of the church will catch fire Lauren stopped into Panera one day this week and said, hey, 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 I, going down to Conshohocken is blocked off around 4th Street, 5th Street, and there's all sorts of fire trucks down there. And I left Panera, got in the car, drove down here as fast as I could to get down to see what was going on. Sorry, Notre Dame was in my mind, uh, and, uh, and things were fine. Uh, I, I called a police officer driving on the way, and things were fine. But we don't know those things. You don't know when you get married if the marriage is going to be good. You may think you know, but you don't actually know. You don't know whether a pregnancy is going to be successful. You don't know whether or not all of the work that you're putting in to rearing your children well is going to yield children who fear the Lord. We don't know these things. We don't know if a particular illness is going to be healed or is going to lead to our death. We don't know these things. Faith is not saying, I know that God will fix, fill in the blank, this situation. That God will make this all better. That God will allow me to prosper. Think of, and I don't want to go into this right now, but think of the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think, think of them there and what they have to say to Nebuchadnezzar. Our God can deliver us from this. But if not, we're not going to bow the knee any case, in any case. We don't know. Can he deliver us out of the fiery furnace? Yes, he can. Will he de deliver us out of the fiery furnace? I don't know if that's going to take place or not. Faith is believing that he is able to do these things and then acting that way and trusting in him regardless of the earthly outcome. The community of faith 
must be a resilient community and a courageous community of faith that's easy to do when something has been blessed, when something goes well, and of course harder to do in the face of defeat, of disaster, of failure, of any of the things or any other things, any of the things I mentioned or of any other things that are there. And then we have, of course, and I'm not going to go into these in any kind of depth, we have the extraordinary qualities, the admirable traits that are demonstrated in the armor bearer, the loyalty and the devotion, the support, the encouragement, the love that are a part of that. And we don't even know his name. We don't even know his name. It is uh, Ruth-like to Naomi. It is Joshua-like to Moses. And we could even say it is Jonathan-like to David. It's Epaphroditus and Timothy-like to Paul, the way that this man supports Jonathan. We won't be Jonathan, David, Paul, but oh, the joy, oh, the joy of being an unnamed armor bearer to support the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the remainder of the story I'm not going to talk about uh, really at all. I think the victory is clear enough. And so I want to then take it now to the nature of our warfare and try and explain this for us, try and figure out, all right, what do we have for us? Jonathan was a warrior. He was a king's son. He had a sword, and it was a real, actual sword strapped to his side. He was a commander. He was a leader of men in battle. So the odds are against him in this situation, but this actually is a situation in which you'd want a kind of guy like that. That's who he was. His mission was to kill the enemy, literally. To kill the uncircumcised Philistines and thus save his people, Israel. And the New Testament exhorts the followers of Jesus to put on the armor of God, to suffer as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, to fight the good fight, and thus those qualities that I mentioned of Jonathan and his armor bearer should be praised and they should be developed by us as people. But the weapons of our warfare, the nature of our enemy have changed. The words of our Lord Jesus to Peter are words which belong to every age of the church. Put your sword back in its sheath. Hey, when, he, when Jesus is being arrested, and Peter takes out the sword, put the sword away. And Paul makes it clear. Paul says, our enemy is not flesh and blood. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Our weapons are faith, the word of God and prayer, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace. Those are our weapons. Our, our warfare, make no mistake, our warfare is not less real, 
but it is in fact a spiritual warfare in which we are engaged, not physical. Countries may go to war, the state has the authority of the sword, but the church, as the church, or as individuals in the church, or as small groups of individuals from the church, cannot initiate violence, cannot take up weapons to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. Now, I would like to think that I didn't need to say a single thing that I just spent the last three minutes saying. That's what I would like to think. I would like to think that you were all sitting there while I said that going, yes, okay, well, we know that. We got, we got that. That's familiar to us. Why would you think we would think in any other way? Well, because we need to be confronted by something. So last week, if you've been following the news, last week there was a shooting at a Chabad synagogue in California. And according to the present reporting of this, and, and I think it is actually completely accurate, the alleged gunman was the son of an OPC ruling elder, a member of the OPC church in Escondido, California, a young man. Now, we are not the OPC. The OPC is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we are the Presbyterian Church in America. But having said that, we're not the same denomination. But having said that, there couldn't be closer ties between two denominations than there are between the OPC and the PCA. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We confess a common faith. Now this young man apparently posted, I think what now is called a manifesto, in which he attached the motives of his action in some ways to his faith, attributing his shooting to accomplishing the work of God. Now, I've not read the manifesto, so I may be mixing up a few things there. I'm, I'm, I'm noting that from articles about it. Let me be as clear as I possibly can be. His actions were wrong. They were heinous. They were atrocious. His actions were sin. They were disobedient to the will of God. And they are utterly and completely inconsistent to the call of Christ to his followers. His theology that attached himself to acting on behalf of God, to, I suppose, somehow executing the vengeance of God, is murder. It is errant. It is deplorable. And we repudiate, we reject, we condemn the violence, the theology of the violence, the motives, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the hatred 
that is seen in this awful action. That is not our warfare. It is not the way that we exercise the faith and the fight to which we have been called. Last night, Laura and I had the joy of being at a party with about 50 Jewish friends, dancing together and singing together. And I will tell you that almost every person who spoke, and a number spoke at this birthday party, referenced this. That community is in pain because of these, this shooting and other shootings like it. And others are as well. I prayed earlier for the church in Sri Lanka. May the Lord be gracious and compassionate in a way that we can't even imagine, that we can't even understand, and console those who have been shattered, have been devastated by this. That is not our warfare. If you want a little bit more information, you can go onto the OPC's uh, webpage, and it's right there. Uh, there's, a, there's a statement about it right there that I think is clear, succinct, but beautifully stated that repudiates this action. Paul describes our warfare in the passage that I read from Timothy, and it consists of pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Those are the words right out of 1 Timothy. Gentleness. It pursues eternal life. It fights to make and to maintain the good confession of faith. To worship, to be humble, to be hopeful, thankful. We fight to do good, to be generous, to be a people who are ready to share. That's our battle. That's the fight that has been entrusted to us, and that is the way that we, as the people of God, honor the spirit of Jonathan, the heart and soul of Jonathan, as his armor-bearer said. That's the way that we honor that, and it is how we donned in the spirit of Christ. It is how we participate with our Lord Jesus who did it, defeat the evil one. More importantly, it's how we honor the Lord Jesus, who, in the words of Isaiah, did no violence, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Violence against Jesus purchased peace. It purchased this opportunity of the new covenant for all men everywhere to repent and to believe the good news and to find in him eternal life. What then is the call for us today? Well, the call for us always when we see these battles, and I've tried to make this clear all the way along, before we see anything that applies to us in terms of fighting, it is to see Jesus who has on our behalf gained the victory, our champion. But let's talk about us in light of Jonathan. Recall the qualities the initiative, the courage, the faith, the action, the loyalty, the love, the support in the armor bearer. Ralph Davis, who's a writer that I love on this entire section of Scripture, uh, describes it this way. He, he describes it as, Jonathan possesses the imagination of faith. The imagination of faith. 
the ability to look at the world, to look at the gifts that one has, the opportunities that are in front of us, and to imagine what faith might do through us in a particular circumstance. So what has God placed on your heart? What has he laid on your heart today, or what have you been thinking about recently in this season of your life? Is there something? Perhaps there's some ministry opportunity. Perhaps there's something in church, something in your neighborhood, something at your home, something in your school, something in your workplace, a conversation, a Bible study, an opportunity for a discipling relationship with someone, for accountability with someone. Maybe there's a way for you to serve. Maybe there's a place that you've been thinking about where you can volunteer, where you can invest your time in doing that which is good. Is there something that God might be calling you to step into by faith? Where right now you're actually on the sidelines. Where right now you're actually going, man, those are bad-looking rocky crags. And I know that on top of the rocky crags, there's people with enemies, with weapons up there. And I'm not going up the rocky crag. There's got to be a better way. Is there an opportunity that God has set before you and speaks to you and says, listen, you're shying away from this. Courage and faith take some initiative. Consider it. Maybe it's something about which you've been hesitant to do. Maybe you've been lazy or afraid of it for some reason. The call of your commander in this passage is engage. Fight. Don't take your talent, talent, talent. Don't take your spiritual gifts, bury them in the ground somewhere. The Lord is able to use you. And it may be that he will work through you. Lord, we pray with confession and with hope that you would take us off the sideline and you would engage us well in fighting the good fight. Wherever we've been placed, whatever our station is, whatever is before us, enable, grant strength. Jesus, you are our captain, our forerunner. You have conquered. And in your name, we fight. Lord, forgive us for where we misapply that. Be merciful to those who have suffered violence wrongly and unjust, unjustly and inappropriately. Be merciful and be merciful to us in Jesus' name. Amen.